podcast family, let me be very honest with you. I just don't think I could take working day in and day out, even if it's shift work, in the emergency department. Now, it's true, I'm a little ADD. I like the high-stress, high-pace environment. That's why I like labor and delivery. But there's something about the ED that's just not for me. So if you work in the emergency department, thank you for what you do. We need great, functional, uh, high-level emergency departments. You provide a great service. But sometimes some things are done in the ED that just make you kind of scratch your head and go, well, why did you do that? <laughs> Such was the case that happened to one of our podcast family members, Cynthia. So Cynthia sent me this question through our Facebook Messenger and said, Hey, Dirt Chop, I had a quick question for you. What do I do with an HCG, a very low-level HCG, on a postmenopausal patient? Of course, my question was, well, well, why did you check an HCG on a postmenopausal patient? And the answer was, well, she went into the ED for an unrelated issue and she was going to get a CT scan. So, of course, they did an HCG. Now, this was a serum test. Now, mind you, she'd been menopausal for six years. Six years. Not perimenopausal. Not like maybe menopausal. Six years. Period. Gone. Age appropriate. Nothing's going on. Check a pregnancy test. See, that's one of those things where you're just kind of checking the box instead of using maybe a little bit of critical judgment. Uh, Not judging them. I'm just saying if somebody is six years menopausal, you probably don't need a pregnancy test. Lo and behold, the 8CG was 7. Now, remind you, the universal standard is 5 or below considered negative. So technically, this was not negative, right? It's 7. So what do we do with that? What do we do with the incidental HCG in a menopausal patient? Well, some of the workup is actually pretty in-depth. The quick answer is just check a urine and be done with it. But sometimes we got to go deeper into that. And that's what I told Cynthia. Well, we could check a quick urine, make sure it's all clear. And we're going to explain that in this episode. But sometimes there's other things in the background that you've got to make sure you're not missing. So it all depends on what that HCG level was. And we're going to give you a surprising source of HCG that's not pregnancy-related in the menopausal patient. So if you're curious, hang around with us. We're going to cover the incidental HCG finding in the postmenopausal patient. Cynthia, thanks for your message. Uh, Keep me posted on that uh, patient's progress. And now let's get to our episode. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. One of my great friends from medical school is from Chicago and is still in Chicago and has worked in inner city Chicago in the emergency room since we graduated residency. Again, I'm not telling you when that was because I'm not old. Anyway, Vernell's a great guy. Oh, but periodically, I guess about every six months or so, he'll send me a text and go, all right, man, I'm done. I just can't take it anymore. I'm done. I can't take this anymore. Uh, Meaning the stress of the ER. He's been saying that for over a decade, and truth is, he loves it. And then he comes back and goes, all right, I'm good. I had a day off or two. I'm I'm back at it. Because that's what we do, right? But the ER is a very unique situation. It's a very unique place because it can be very high stress. And at the other end of the extreme, then you've got kind of the routine stuff, like you came into the ER because you've had a cold, right? I mean, it's just kind of universal. And so you've got this big dichotomy from stuff that's really, really bad, uh, like the gunshot wound or the knife into the chest. Uh, And then at the other extreme, the cold that just won't go away. Uh, So what a place. Definitely not for me. But again, I'm so thankful for those in the ER uh, slash ED, whatever you want to call it now. I still call it ER. 
Maybe because of the show. Maybe it's ED. No, I don't like ED. ED sounds too much like erectile dysfunction. Oh my gosh, I've totally lost sight of what I'm talking about. Let's get back to the message here. Now, I know what you may be thinking. Man, it's seven. Seven milia use per ml. I mean, really? Is that a big deal? Well, technically, it's not negative, right? I mean, it's, it's still something. But that just raises the bigger question is what do we do with these low-level HCGs in menopause? Uh, obviously, pregnancy is excluded. So let's just say that right now, right? We're talking about she's not pregnant. That's the easy one. Although it could be some related to pregnancy sequelae, which we're going to discuss here, uh, specifically a, a, a reactivation, if you will, of gestational neoplasia, a choriocarcinoma. Uh, but that's not what we're talking about. We're going to discuss that, but excluding pregnancy as an etiology, what do we do with these low-level positive results? Let's say it was 15 uh, or even 20 for that matter. Uh, is, is that normal? What do we do with that? Pregnancy is not a concern. What do we do with this incidental HCG? Well, the first answer is don't do a test that's probably not necessary. That's the first thing. Uh, like if the patient has had a complete hysterectomy, a total abdominal hysterectomy with BSO, probably doesn't need a pregnancy test. I've had that happen to me as well. Um, like you got a pregnancy test? He doesn't have anything in there, man. There's no internal female genitalia anyway. Uh, so the first thing is don't get a test that's not indicated. But when you do find these false positive uh, or potential false positive tests, we still have some ethical obligations and professional duty to the patient to make sure that nothing else is out there. Now, in this case, it was seven, and I answered Cynthia with a very academic, very thorough answer because I want to make sure I'm not missing anything. I'm just super conservative. The truth is that the easiest thing would just to have done a urine test because that likely would have been negative, and we're going to discuss that in a minute. Uh, because the first question is, wait a minute, wouldn't you check, isn't the serum better than, than the urine? And the answer is absolutely, except for one condition that we're going to address. Um, so the take home is just get a test when it's really indicated and have some thought behind it rather than just checking the box. Yes, I understand. That was a little bit of a soapbox issue. Now let's get back to the data. In a perimenopausal or postmenopausal woman, an elevation in HCG can raise the concern of malignancy or even pregnancy, but it can also be a result of a benign physiologic process that we're going to describe and discuss in this episode. This whole issue of a positive HCG excluding pregnancy in a truly menopausal patient was the subject of a wonderful publication in 2018 that reviewed the academic workup of a patient presenting with this. Notice what I said there. That's the academic workup. That means it's very in-depth, but not necessarily the most practical. But we'll discuss that a little bit further on in the episode. This academic review was out of the journal Evidence-Based Practice. Now, if you hadn't heard that there's a journal called Evidence-Based Practice, you know that there's a journal for everything. And it's actually a pretty good one, but it's just so academic. It's kind of in the minutia, but it really does, trust me, have good info. That was published again in March 2018, and the first author was Rubio Reyes. And the title is, What are the Diagnostic Considerations in a Menopausal Woman with a Positive ACG Test Result? Well, that's perfectly fitting because that's exactly what we're covering here. These authors conducted a retrospective case series evaluating 170 women with persistent low level of HCG that were all menopausal, and they had that for at least three months, and these patients were found between 1998 and 2004. 
Now, according to this analysis, the most common cause of elevated human chorionic gonadotropin in these menopausal women was the false positive test. Okay, that makes sense. But you figured it'd be a lot higher than the 42% that they found. So, wait a minute. I mean, if it's 42%, I would have guessed that'd be like 99%. But this is why you just can't go automatically out to, oh, that's just a false positive. I'm not going to work that up. Because in this cohort, it was 42% that were identified as otherwise false positive. All right, that makes sense. Duh, it's pretty straightforward, false positive. But what about the other percentages? Okay, well, in the other percentages accounting for this positive HCG rise, they found quiescent gestational trophoblastic disease accounted for 41% of the rest of the cohort. Now, let me clarify that because you're like, holy moly, that's more than a third. <laughs> yes, and actually, that's why it's important to go and review the patient's history because a third of the patient population in this cohort had a history of gestational trophoblastic neoplasia or had, had treatment for it. So the first question is, hey, by the way, tell me about past pregnancies. Ever had something called a molar gestation or by chance choriocarcinoma? You would think you would have figured that out in a previous history. But nonetheless, ask them. So again, in this cohort, a third had a previous history of GTN, which explains why they had some low-lying HCG even in menopause, um, but that's definitely not a carryover to the general population. Also remember that this is only a population of 170 women, so there's some selection bias here. Now, before you start freaking out that, oh my goodness, my patient who's menopause, who has an HCG, could have GTN sequelae, remember, it's 41% in this cohort because likely uh, due to selection bias. The rest of the percentages look like this. 10% were found to be due to just low-level pituitary production. And yes, the pituitary can produce HCG, even outside of menopause. I'm going to explain that in a minute. And then thankfully, the smallest percentage is what our minds initially go to first. Because the first thought is, oh my goodness, this is an ovarian cancer that's producing HCG. And we should consider that. But in this cohort and in other publications, that seems to be the more rare of the possibility, and that's 7.6%. Now, I do need to say something here, because one of the most commonly accepted causes of a false positive HCG in menopause or even in reproductive, reproductive age uh, was not found in this cohort, all right? Any guesses? Anyone? Anyone? That's the heterophilic antibody. We're going to discuss that. So I found that interesting because... The main reason why false positive ACGs can happen uh, is because of something called a heterophilic antibody. So that's odd that that was not accounted for in this cohort. But remember, again, just an N of 170 and just one publication. All right, podcast family, we're going to tackle this thing in a couple of big boxes so we can figure out where this HCG is coming from, okay? And this is how you would think about this if you're working up a patient. First, we're going to cover the whole issue about pituitary production because I think that's super interesting. Some of us for, has, have forgotten that from our REI courses, our reproductive endocrinology and infertility courses back either in med school or nursing school or maybe you just were never taught that at all. Second, we're going to briefly touch on the whole ovarian cancer thing because we've got to say that. We're going to just briefly, just like a one-liner, say something about GTN because again, we have to mention that. And then I want to spend some time on the heterophilic and because that's a big deal. 
We're going to wrap up the podcast with a very practical algorithm of how to evaluate these patients. I'm going to give you two algorithms, actually. The real academic one, the one that's very detailed, the one from the evidence-based practice folks, and then a more practical one that ACOG actually put out some years ago, but it was reaffirmed back in 2020. Okay, let's start first with the pituitary. That's actually pretty stinking cool. And that's a big clinical pearl. Yes, the anterior pituitary can secrete 8CG normally. You see, I think that's a gap in medical education. Everybody is taught, of course, that the placenta makes HCG to the syncytial trophoblast, cytotrophoblast. We get that. Uh, and that's right. We also get taught that it's made by molar gestations or gestational trophoblastic neoplasia. And that's correct. And of course, is the ovarian cancer thing. But that's a small slice of ovarian cancer germ cell tumors. And those are all correct. But I don't think it really gets taught that the anterior pituitary naturally secretes HCG. Elevated HCG levels have been detected in as many as 10% of perimenopausal and postmenopausal women who are not pregnant and have no other disease or tumor. That was published on several occasions by Cole et al. The first was in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2007, and he liked that work so much that Cole did it again in the Gray Journal, the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, in 2008. If you look up some of this data on HCG and perimenopausal and postmenopausal patients, you'll get a lot of this author that repeats, and that's Lawrence A. Cole. Uh, and I love that. I mean, thank goodness for people who find their niche and like to study something because uh, that person has done a lot of research and his team uh, in trying to build up this evidence. So Lawrence Cole, thank you for what you've done because now we definitely know that, yes, without a doubt, the pituitary can secrete low tonic levels of HCG. But in true fairness, Cole wasn't the first because pituitary HCG production was first described back in the 1970s after HCG staining was seen in pituitary gland extracts. How cool is that? Some of that information was published by Stenman et al. back in 1987 in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. Now, here's a good clinical question and a practical one. Well, what the heck is its function? Why does the pituitary do that? I mean, we know what it does in pregnancy, but why does the pituitary do it? Well, the truth is nobody really knows. The exact role of HCG outside of pregnancy is still kind of unclear. In premenopausal women, HCG and LH levels actually rise during ovulation. Yep, that same researcher, Cole, was the one to figure that out. As women get older, HCG levels, like those of FSH and LH, tend to rise due to loss of negative feedback inhibition from estrogen and progesterone. According to the Cleveland Clinic's Journal of Medicine from 2021, several studies have tried to look at what is a normal HCG cutoff for a menopausal woman so that we don't have to freak out every time that we get a result back. And the truth is, even though there's some controversy, the expert opinion is that in postmenopausal women, an HCG value of up to 14 can be considered normal. All right, now you got to admit, that's kind of cool, right? I mean, that's interesting. And that's super important clinically because most laboratories only give the reference range for premenopausal non-pregnant women, which is typically five or under. And that's not the reference range for postmenopausal women. Well, let's leave the pituitary there and briefly focus on the ovary before we get to the cross-reacting antibody because I really want to cover the antibody stuff. That's really kind of neat. 
But before I do that, let's tackle what everybody's mind first goes to, that this thing is an ovarian cancer to prove otherwise. And that's good. We should think about that. But remember that the HCG levels in an ovarian neoplasm is typically not low level, not tonically elevated, like at a small level, typically defined as under 20. These are significantly elevated with ranges above 35 and in some cases above 100. Physicians and caregivers often go to this obvious and worse scenario of an ovarian malignancy. But remember that ovarian germ cell tumors only make up about 10% of all ovarian malignancies, and they tend to happen much less frequently in menopause because the data show a peak prevalence in young women and adolescents. So while thinking about an ovarian neoplasm is definitely legit, it's just not the most common. Now, if you've got levels that definitely approach 50 or above, then definitely do that pelvic ultrasound because you do have to rule out these ovarian malignancies. But germ cell tumors, once again, not likely in perimenopausal or postmenopausal women. And a brief word about lingering sequelae from gestational trophoblastic neoplasia, like we discussed in that cohort publication with an N of 170. Now, that's pretty easy, right? I mean, just ask the patient, has she been treated for this in the past? Now, even though GTN is legit and they can have some low-level secretions that persist, it's really unlikely. So once again, ovarian malignancy, yes, consider it, but thankfully not very common. And GTN, outside of that one cohort publication uh, where a third of the patients had a previous history, is something to consider, but you can rule that out very quickly with simply asking the patient and doing a detailed history about past gynecological issues and obstetrical history. Okay, well, as another Texan famously says, all right, all right, all right. Let's leave that and let's start getting into the discussion of the heterophilic antibody next. Okay, so one of my team members during that little hiatus told me that that was the worst Matthew McConaughey they ever heard. Um, well, thanks. I mean, that's that's what I get. See, this is what I get from my team members. Just for you to know, I put in all this effort for this thing, and I get nothing but grief from my team. <laughs> I get nothing but grief from my team and shaking heads <laughs> with my jokes and my off-tangents that they hate. You see, like this one right here. Oh, my gosh. All right, let's get into the false positive HCG results due to interfering antibodies. I'm sorry, guys. Okay, cross-reacting antibodies. This is kind of cool, too, because sometimes we find this not in a postmenopausal patient, but when we're following up a patient who's had methotrexate for an ectopic pregnancy. In ACOG's Committee Opinion 278, it reminds us that some individuals have naturally occurring circulating factors in their serum that can interact with the HCG antibody. And in these tests, the most common are something called heterophilic antibodies, right? Now, these are human antibodies detected against animal-derived antigens that are used in amino assays. You're like, well, how the heck did they get an animal-derived antigen? That's easy, exposure to animals. So has your patient worked in a, with a veterinary clinic, uh, does experiments with animals? I mean, honestly, this is, this is a thing. Uh, wild, right? Individuals who have worked in these animal labs like lab technicians or even in veterinary facilities who sometimes have a lot of exposure to, to animals can develop these heterophilic antibodies. 
and they can cross-react with the ACG assay. Immuno assays of all kinds use animal antibodies, so there's the tie-in. People with heterophilic antibodies might have unusual results to a number of different kinds of assays. However, because the animal antibodies are used in different amounts and with different reagents in each assay system, somebody with heterophilic antibodies may not always have an unusual result based on the lab where it's drawn. So that's something we'll talk about when we get to the end about the clinical workup and the algorithm. So that if you get this, the easiest thing to do is just repeat it at another lab because they may use a different immunoassay. One of the easiest ways to figure this out, if it's a heterophilic antibody or not, is to get a urine test, okay? Get a UCG. And this is also covered in ACOG's Practice Bulletin, which is 193, where it discusses this tonic low level of 8-CG after methotrexate. It's not really going down. It's kind of a plateau, but it's really low level because that could be a response of a heterophilic antibody. That's an ACOG Practice Bulletin 193 on tubal ectopic pregnancy, okay? So the quick answer to that is check the urine. All right, check the urine. Why? Why would we check the urine? Well, that's super easy. And the answer is because these interfering antibodies have such a different molecular weight that's larger than regular HCG that it prevents renal filtration and urinary excretion. Cool. So there you go. So if it's a heterophilic antibody, you can detect that in the serum, but because of its molecular weight, it doesn't show up in the urine. So again, there's it's not a perfect world. There are some caveats to that, but in general, uh, a negative urine test with a low-level positive serum HCG typically means that the patient has a heterophilic antibody. And yes, of course, there's a much more complex and academic way to figure out if it's a heterophilic antibody or not, otherwise known as just an interfering antibody, and that's that you can run a different assay, okay? So you can call your lab and say, I'm looking for heterophilic antibodies in serum, and they can actually do that. They can actually run reagents that have purified animal immunoglobulin. They can add reagents to the assay. They can do all of these different things to try to figure that out, but it's much more easier to just pee in a cup. Anyway, some of that information on the heterophilic antibody serum test comes out of clinical chemistry in 2008, with McCudden et al. being the publishing group. Okay, we're almost at the end. Now let's talk about a workable algorithm should you have a patient who's postmenopausal and has this low-level HCG. Remember, that's the key here, low-level. If their HCG is like 200, uh, wow. I mean, get her a pelvic ultrasound, do a detailed history. You may need to get a scan. That's super abnormal. All right. We're talking about the, the, the really, the more challenging ones, because those are easy. You're just going to work her up and pan image her. Um, excluding the pregnancy, of course, because she's menopausal. But it's these low-level tonic ones that get in people's nerves, and you got to figure them out. So again, this is the one that's much more zebra-finding than those that are drastically elevated. So a postmenopausal patient, ACG is found to be 500. Uh, I mean, my goodness, you got to find that out quickly. And that's where you go for maybe it's ovarian malignancy. You know, is this GTN? Uh, is this a pituitary tumor? So you're going to do pen imaging for that. But again, our focus focuses on this low-level tonic uh, secretions that are found in the serum of HCG. That's our focus here. Remember that publication under evidence-based practice that we talked about a little bit earlier in the podcast? Well, as I told you, that's a very, very complicated, very deep 
uh, academic algorithm. And as you could guess, I like that a lot. But it's not the most practical, okay? So to be the most practical, you'd have to go back to that ACOG Committee Opinion 278, which was reaffirmed back in 2020, which basically says, look, just run the serum again in a different lab and, or have her pee in a cup, and if it's negative, it's negative. That's the most practical one, all right? And I love that ACOG Committee Opinion 278 because the title is ex exactly what we're talking about, how to work up a patient who likely has a false positive HCG without going nuts, all right? That's my synopsis of the title, but you can get that on ACOG's Committee Opinion 278. Again, it was reaffirmed back in 2020. So just to be clear, just to recap, the most practical is run the test again in a different lab uh, or look for a heterophilic antibody in the serum or have them pee in a cup. Fine. The more academic answer is that you can actually run different assays for different types of HCG. Okay, now that's where it gets really interesting and much more academic because you can actually look for something called HCG H, okay, HCG, human chorionic gonadotropin dash H. That's the hyperglycosylated form of HCG. This hyperglycosylated form of HCG is just as it sounds. It's hyperglycosylated, okay? The oligosaccharides are much more prevalent in this form of HCG than in regular HCG. HCGH promotes trophoblast invasion during choriocarcinoma and it helps with the growth of cytotrophoblast cells and placental implantation in pregnancy. Now, HCGH is an independent monocle to HCG with totally separate biological functions, all right? HCG, regular HCG has numerous functions during pregnancy, which helps promote progesterone production, it helps promote angiogenesis, and we get that. But this whole issue of HCGH is a little bit different because this is the one that actually persists with gestational trophoblastic disease. So if you're interested in finding a possible uh, GTN sequelae, then consider ordering HCGH. I told you this was much more the academic answer. And since we're talking about academic stuff, just remember this quick clinical pearl in case somebody asks you. No one's going to ask you, but it's good for you to know. <laughs> it's good for you to know. HCGH, okay, the hyperglycosylated form, is produced by the cytotrophoblast cells, while regular pregnancy HCG is made in the syncytiotrophoblast, all right? So cytotrophoblast is the site of HCGH, and regular HCG is made in the syncytiotrophoblast. All right, so those are two different algorithms. The first is go really deep into a serum assay of HCG and get either the free beta HCG or the hyperglycosylated form, or you could just have a peanut cup. <laughs> so <laughs> the academic answer and then the practical, and again, only for these low-level tonic HCG detections, if it's vastly abnormal, then you know, do a thorough history, do a physical, and figure out what's going on. But always consider the possibility of a heterophilic antibody. Remember that the normal serum level in postmenopausal women could be an HCG up to about 15. So just keep that in mind.
All right, podcast family, I hope you found that helpful. If anything, a little bit of interesting. Well, at least we learned that the pituitary gland actually does secrete HCG up to a certain amount. That's kind of cool. Cynthia, thanks for reaching out. Um, Just have her peanut cup. That's the easy answer. But again, it's not that easy for everyone because every patient is different. Every value is different. But especially in this patient that had a level about 70, that's pretty much a heterophilic antibody, just a standard false positive. But I gave you the academic answer because I can't help myself. Uh, And then there's the practical answer of the urine. Anyway, for everyone, I hope you found it helpful. I I hope you found it insightful. And thank you once again for being part of our podcast community. These are great suggestions that come in through our Facebook page, uh, through our messenger. So thank you. Anyway, we're glad you're with us and we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.